doing a sermon series in the book of Matthew. Over the Christmas season, we looked at the birth of Jesus Christ from Matthew chapters 1 and 2, very familiar passages about how Jesus Christ was born. And what we're going to do now for the next several months is we're just going to keep going in the book of Matthew. And my plan is to get all the way through chapter 7. That's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So there's some really wonderful stuff in there. It's going to take us several months. It'll probably take us past Easter. I don't have it exactly all lined up where it's going to go. But over the course of the next several months, I would love for you all to be getting to know this section of scripture for yourself. And what I want you to look for specifically is what kind of response are we to give to Jesus Christ? That's that's kind of one of the themes that I see as we we see these various passages in, in the book of Matthew. But I want you to be reading it on your own and getting to know it over these next few months, not just from listening to me, but listening to God as you read his word, what it says. Now, in today's passage, in Matthew 2, we're going to finish up what is oftentimes told along with the Christmas story. It's the story of the wise men, the magi, coming from the east. Now, a pop quiz for you. How many wise men were there, and what were their names? Does anybody know? Dan, you know? We're not sure. We're not sure. Okay. No, no, we know the answer. There were three wise guys, Larry, Moe, and Curly, right? Oh, okay. That was... Not one of my better jokes, I admit. (laughs) No, um, historically, some people have said that, you know, there were three wise men and their names were Gaspar, Belfazar, and Melchior. But but Dan is right. We just don't know that for sure. We know that they brought three gifts. That's probably why we've associated with there being three wise men. But we just don't know uh, how many there were or what their names were. And truthfully, we don't even know for sure when they came. It's, It's told right after the birth story of Jesus Christ Uh, But there's a couple of clues in there that might make it look like uh, they didn't come right at the birth. For example, I think it's in verse 11, it says that the wise men came to a house, not to a stable. And then also, when Herod learns of this this plan where he was tricked by the wise men and he wants to kill baby Jesus, he kills all the kids who are two years old and under. So that might be a clue that this all happened a little bit later. So somewhere between the birth of Christ and two years after, the, the wise men came and visited Jesus. Um, but this chapter, chapter 2, isn't only about the wise men. And really what this chapter does is it shows how God brought our Savior and it shows two different responses to our Savior. So my sermon today has two parts. We're going to first look at God's part in bringing the Savior and then we're going to look at what our response should be by looking at the responses in here, uh, one good and one bad response. Okay, so we're going to read Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, or we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. 
After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east, or when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, the word there isn't just overjoyed. It's actually four words in the original Greek, and it's something like they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So I, I think overjoyed is a little bit of an understatement here. They were really thrilled to be able to find out where the king had been born. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Herod said earlier he was going to worship the child, but that's not what he had in mind. He had in mind to kill the child. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Okay, like I said, my sermon today has two parts. The first part we're going to look at is God's part in bringing the Savior. So that's part one. And underneath part one, we've got uh, part A and part B, if you're following along in the bulletin. So two ways we're going to look at that God brought about the Savior. And the first of those, part A, has to do with fulfillment of Scripture. Fulfillment of Scripture. You see, when Jesus came as a baby, born in Bethlehem, it wasn't just some random idea that that God had. It wasn't just like on the spur of the moment, he said, ah, I'll, I'll send him to Bethlehem. No, not only had God planned this since eternity passed, but he had also revealed through his Scripture the exact place where the Savior would be born. So what I want to do here is I want to show you three fulfillments of Scripture that we see in this passage from the birth and the early years of Jesus Christ. And and like I said, the first one has to do with Bethlehem. I I think it's pretty interesting that when the wise men came to Jerusalem, and they didn't know all about the Scripture, so they said, where where was the king born? And uh, Herod uh, said, well, let's, let's go ask the scribes, the teachers of the law. So he went to ask them, where did Scripture say that the child is to be born? And the teachers of the law didn't have to think about it too. It's not like they had to scratch their heads. And they, they knew. They said, well, Scripture tells us. In Micah 5, 2, it says the child will be born in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was the town of King David. It was this, the place where his family lived. King David was the king about 1,000 years before Christ was born. And as I've said in a couple of my recent sermons, it's pretty important to understand that Jesus Christ came from the line of David. There were lots of promises in the Bible that had to happen that way. 
So now we see not only was he from the line of David, but he was from the town of David as well. And, and this prophecy is pretty important. Um, there are, there are skeptic out, skeptics out there, and in some ways we should all have a, a questioning mind, but a skeptic could say, well, Jesus knew about these prophecies in the Old Testament, and he tried to fulfill them. Well, with this one in particular, it doesn't work very well. You don't get to pick the place where you're born. I know that now. We've got four kids, and they kind of just, you know, it, it has a lot to do with where the mother is. That's really where a child is going to be born, is where the mother is. So I, th- I think that this is an amazing fulfillment of scripture here. God said hundreds of years before he's going to be born in Bethlehem and he actually was. Okay, the second fulfillment I want to show you is in verse 15. Um, in that one, Matthew states that Jesus' time spent in Egypt and his departure from Egypt, that they were fulfillments of scripture from Hosea 11.1, 1, which says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you were just reading the book of Hosea and you came across verse 1, you probably wouldn't pick that out as a prophecy about the coming Messiah. But this one is important because it links Jesus with the nation of Israel. Now, the nation of Israel was supposed to follow God. And from what we know of the Bible, they didn't exactly do a real great job of that. Sometimes they did really well. Other times they did really poorly at that. But, but God wanted Israel to be his faithful children. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, perfectly followed God in all that he did. So in that sense, Jesus fulfilled, or if you're looking for your theological word of the day, here it is. Those of you that want to go home and impress somebody with a a theological word, you can say that Jesus recapitulated Israel's history. Now, all that means is that all that Israel was supposed to be, Jesus was. Jesus perfectly fulfilled all that God asked of him. And down to the, even the littlest details, things like going to Egypt and being brought out. I mean, that's a huge part of Israel's history, was going to Egypt and then God bringing them out safely. So many things you'll notice from the life of Jesus, and I don't have time to get into all of them, but so many things recapitulate or fulfill the story of Israel's history, and Jesus does it perfectly. Okay, and then the third fulfillment of scripture we see has to do with this, this terrible thing that King Herod did in verses 16 through 18 when he killed all the boys in Bethlehem two years old and under. Matthew relates that to the time in Jeremiah 31 where they were speaking of the exile of Israel. There was a, a very dark time in Israel's history where they were so unfaithful that God took them out of Israel and, and brought them into exile in Babylon. So the tragedy in Jesus' day was that Herod killed all these babies. And, and what a tragedy that was. I mean, I, I don't even want to spend any time thinking about how that would affect me. You know, if, I shudder to think of what would happen, of, of how I would take it if my children were killed. But that's what happened here. It was a great tragedy. And, and Matthew links that tragedy to the tragedy of the exile of Israel some 500 years earlier. But it's interesting. Matthew's quoting Jeremiah 31, and he picked a verse out of there, perhaps the saddest verse out of there. But if you read Jeremiah 31, it is not all sadness. Not nearly. In fact, uh, right after the weeping in Jeremiah 31.15, the people were told not to weep because God promised that they would return. In, in verse 17 in Jeremiah 31, it says, Your children will return to their own land. There would be hope 
for the future. So for that passage to be quoted in regard to what happened in Jesus' day is, is a reminder to us that death is not the end. That yes, this was a horrible tragedy. This thing that Herod did was a terrible tragedy and caused for great mourning. But the fact that it's told as part of the story of Jesus Christ reminds us that mourning is not the end. Jesus Christ came to save from death. So yes, there was death here, and yes, there is death in our lives, but we who know Christ as Savior and Lord, we know that death is not the end of the story. And I think it's, it's very accurate to, to look at this passage here, to look at this tragedy, but also to look at it through the lens of Jeremiah 31 and realize there is a hope for our future. Jeremiah 31 talks about the new covenant. It talks about complete forgiveness of sins. And all that was fulfilled in the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So in all three of these things, we see God fulfilling his promises. And that's important for us. Because God has given us promises. And I think it's neat that as we look back at what God has done in history, we see that first he gave his promises, and then he fulfilled them, every one of them in Jesus Christ. And he's given us more promises now as we look at the New Testament. We see the wonderful things that God has for us. Things like heaven. Things like God's very presence with us. And we know that God will be faithful to fulfill all of those promises to his people. So fulfillment of scripture, it's an important thing that God has done and God will continue to do. He keeps all his promises. Okay, the second part we're going to look at in regard to God's part in bringing the Savior is sovereignty. Sovereignty. Now, I I thought we should have a little spelling contest here, and I I don't know if we could do this, but uh, I wonder who the youngest kid is who could spell the word sovereignty. Does anybody, any kid want to try? Any any brave souls out there want to try to spell the word sovereignty for a candy bar? Oh, really? Gretchen, Gretchen, do you want to try it? Okay, give it a try. S-O-V-E-R-I-G-N-T-Y. So close. You just missed an E. So S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-T-Y. So very good. You know what? Maybe we'll give you half a candy bar for that one, Gretchen. (laughs) I'll eat the first half and then I'll give it to you. Now, if you don't know what the word sovereignty means, it just basically means in charge. God is in charge of all of history. Always has been, always will be. He sees everything. He knows everything. He's in in control. He has the power. So how did all these events of Matthew 2 happen? Well, God made them happen. That's how it happened. Well, let's take a look at a few of the things that God did in his sovereignty. First, let's take a look at that star that star that God caused to shine to signify Christ's birth. It was a star. There was something about it so magnificent that wise men from the east came great distance to go and see what it signified. Now, we don't know exactly what that star was. Some people have made a guess that uh, it was perhaps the alignment of Jupiter and Saturn so that as the wise men were watching the stars, they saw this alignment and they, they saw it pointing to a specific place. Perhaps that's it. Perhaps it was some great cosmic event that God just miraculously caused at that moment. Uh, again, we don't know exactly what it was, but here's the deal. I, I think that God wanted these wise men from the east to come, so he gave them a sign. God miraculously, sovereignly gave this sign. 
Second, God gave dreams and warnings to tell people what to do. Five times in chapters 1 and 2, we see God giving a, a, a dream or a warning to people to tell them what to do or what not to do. Now, I misspoke in my last sermon. I said that all five of those were for Joseph. Actually, four of them were for Joseph, and one was for the wise men. But here's the deal. God wanted Joseph and the wise men to know what to do, to, to go to Egypt, to stay away from this region, to stay away from Herod. And I love this about God. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know how to follow him. Now, for us today, I, I think that that doesn't necessarily mean that we should wait for a dream or a warning. I kept on looking for some sort of sign. You know. Oh, does that license plate have a sign? No, I, I've kind of stopped doing that. Um, in fact, I think the, the main way that God wants us to know him and to follow his ways now is by listening to his word. He, he's given us his word, the Bible, so that we can follow him, so that we know how to walk with him. And, and when you think about it, it's no less sovereign of God to give us his word. Think about the last 2,000 years of human history and all that has gone on, all the, all the upheaval, all the wars. You think of the Dark Ages. And you think that God has brought his word all the way through so that we now have it in our hands? That's part of God's sovereignty. Do you think that God did that perhaps because he wanted us to have his word? I think that's exactly why we have his word in our hands today. So God is sovereign in, in giving his message to his people. And then third, God showed his sovereignty here by keeping Jesus safe, both in sending him to Egypt to keep him safe from King Herod, and then also by warning his parents about telling him specifically where in Israel to live. God showed his sovereignty by keeping Jesus safe. So as we think about this part of the message, I want you to know that today God is still sovereign. God is no less sovereign today than he was during the time of the birth of Christ. God is still very much in control. Now, sometimes our lives don't feel like God is in control. Sometimes things feel like they're spinning out of our control. But you know what? If your life feels like it's spinning out of your control, you know why that is? Because it's not in your control. Your life is not in your control. And praise the Lord for that. I think that there are, there are so many people in this world that wish that they had full control of their lives, but you know what? I'm not one of them. I am so thankful that my life is not in my control. I am so thankful that I have a God who loves me, who leads me in the directions that he wants me to go. That's a far better way for us to live our lives. So the next time you're, you're worried or tempted to try to take control of your own life, I just want to remind you of this. That not only is God sovereign, but also he loves you and has great plans for your life. Okay, so that's what God did in bringing our Savior. Now the question that we should ask as we move to the second section of this sermon is, how should we respond? How should we respond to the Savior who has come? Well, in Matthew chapter 2, we see two very different responses, one from the wise men and one from King Herod. And in looking at these two pictures, we'll see how we should respond and how we should not respond. But let's look first at the wise men. And it's interesting to me that the wise men are so famous. I mean, little kids all over the world know the story about the wise men. And when you think about it, it, they come and go in 16 verses in the Bible. Nowhere else in the Bible are the wise men mentioned except for Matthew 2, verses 1 through 16. 
they're, but yet they're so famous, and I think it's because they have such an interesting story to tell. Probably also because of all the nativity scenes that have them. That's part of their fame. But uh, Now, the wise men came from the east. And just like we don't know how many of them or what their names were, we also don't know exactly where they came from. But we have a good guess that perhaps they came from Persia. And in Persia, magi, uh, to be a magi was an important position. Uh, it would have been a position that had some political influence as well as societal influence. Um, and what they did is they would look at the stars. And they were probably some sort of combination of, of astrologer and astronomer looking up into the skies to see if there were any signs up there. But the question I have about their role in this story is, why would they go? So they, they see this sign in the sky, but what, what was it that prompted them to go? The journey that they took was possibly 100 days long. And, and I don't know if any of you have ever taken a 100-day-long journey through the Middle East. Um, not exactly the best terrain or you know, possibly even dangerous people that they would have met on their journey. They're carrying expensive gifts and they're going through dangerous terrain. What in the world caused these wise men to go? Well, before I tell you what I know for sure, I want to give just a couple of guesses as to what might have been happening. My, my first guess is just very simply that as astronomer astrologers, they saw this thing in the sky and they wondered if it pointed to something. So that just curiosity alone perhaps was part of what prompted them to go. Now, a second guess has to do with Old Testament prophecy. If the wise men were from Persia, that meant that they lived in the same land where the Jews, 500 years earlier, were brought into exile. Remember, the, the Jews were brought from Israel to Babylon into exile. But Babylon didn't remain in power for a very long time. In fact, um, by the end of the exile, we see that the kingdoms of Media and Persia, Persia had taken over Babylon. So if these wise men were from Persia, it is very possible that they had access to the Jewish scriptures, the, the same scriptures that we read in our Old Testament, that pointed ahead to the Messiah. So it could be that these wise men were looking at the stars and maybe even had heard or were studying some Old Testament prophecy, and they put two and two together, and, and they took this trip. But all guessing aside... What they knew for sure is revealed in their question in verse 2. They knew that the king of the Jews had been born. Pretty interesting how they figured that out. I don't know how they figured that one out for sure. But they knew it. They, they said, where is the king of the Jews who has been born? And not only did they know this, but it also says that their intent in going to see him was to worship him. Both in verse 2 and in verse 11, it says that they wanted to worship this king. So they were the ultimate seekers. Now, we Christians today talk a lot about seekers. Uh, church leaders have discussions about, you know, should we be a, a seeker-oriented church or a, or a seeker-friendly church? Or should we just pretend like the seekers aren't there and we just have our worship services for the people who came to worship? And it's a, it's a long and very involved discussion, and I don't have time to get into all of that, but I want to tell you what my conclusion is to that discussion. We should teach seekers how to worship God. A true seeker is somebody who wants to know God. And our role as the people who already know God, well, we should actually be the seekers too, by the way. We should continue to seek God. But if we meet people who are trying to figure out these questions about who God is, 
we shouldn't try to wow them with our music so much or, or you know, have really handsome, funny preachers or things like that. Um, that's why you hire me, because you didn't need one of those. So, uh, but no, what, what should we be doing with seekers? We should point them to God and teach them to worship Him. That's, that's what seekers really need. And, and that's what we see in the story of the wise men. They came and, and they knew some things about the Messiah, but I think that they came wanting to learn more. They were the ultimate seekers. And they brought these gifts, of course, to worship Jesus, gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. Now, all three of those gifts were gifts fit for a king. And, and even if there is no symbolism in the gift, the, the gifts stand alone by themselves as, as very valuable gifts fit for royalty. But, but there may be some symbolism in these gifts. Gold, of course, was the currency of kings. So if you wanted to give a gift to a king, gold would be a great way to do that. And Jesus is the king of kings, so it's a very fitting gift for him. The gift of incense would be a gift fitting for a priest, because incense is what priests use in their worship of God. So uh, whether the wise men knew it or not, their gift of incense perhaps symbolizes that Jesus Christ is not only our king, but also our high priest. And then the gift of myrrh is an interesting one. There's, There's a couple of possibilities as we look at the symbolism of it. One is that myrrh was, sometimes was used to, to symbolize weddings. In Psalm 45, it talks about a, a wedding uh, where the, the groom is clothed in robes that were scented with myrrh. So if that's the symbolism here, then it points to Jesus Christ as the groom and us, the church, as his bride. But there's also another perhaps more meaningful symbolism of the gift of myrrh. Uh, many of you probably are already thinking about this one. In, in John 19, Nicodemus, when he came to, to prepare Jesus' body for burial, he came with strips of linen and with spices, one of which was myrrh. So if that's the symbolism, then myrrh symbolizes the death of Jesus Christ. And the wise men, again, whether knowingly or unknowingly, are bringing this gift in worship of our Savior who died for us. But all of these gifts were brought in worship at great expense to themselves. And think about all the expenses uh, of the wise men here. Financially, I mean, they gave costly gifts in in regard to their time. It took them a long time to go and to come back as well. And then at at risk of danger in their lives. They they maybe didn't know if they were going to make it through this journey. But they spared no expense to go and worship the King of Kings. And this, without question, is the proper response to our Savior, to worship Him. And and just a quick side note here, a theological side note, and I think that this one is so important. The fact that Jesus receives worship here and so many other places in the New Testament, I think is proof of the doctrine of the Trinity. God is the only one who rightfully receives worship And Jesus so often receives worship. Okay, so that's the first response we see, the response of worship. The second response we see in this chapter is the response of King Herod. Right away when we see King Herod in this chapter, we're told in verse 3 that he was disturbed. And and that word disturbed is a pretty strong word. It it could perhaps better be translated in turmoil. There, There was something about Herod, he just did not like to hear about a king of the Jews being born. 
You see, Herod spent a lot of his time worrying about somebody overtaking his throne. He even killed some of his sons, his own sons, worrying that they had plots to overthrow him. There was a famous saying back in his day, it said, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. I'd have a better chance of living if you were his pig. So when Herod learned that the wise men came seeking the one who had been born king of the Jews, his response was to get rid of that person who might overtake his throne. That's why he killed all those young boys in Bethlehem. But the question I want to ask, just like we asked, why did the wise men come? The question I want to ask here is, why did Herod do that? And I think the answer has to be self-interest. Herod was the king, the, the political king, and he thought that that was something that he must hold on to. He spent a lot of his time, a lot of his energy, worrying about that, trying to prop himself up as the most important person in Israel. You could even say that Herod wanted to be worshipped. But the birth of Jesus Christ meant that Jesus is now the most important person in Israel. And he is the one who's worthy of worship. And Herod didn't like that thought. So Herod tried to kill him. And what it comes down to is this. Herod had different plans than God. And his response was to try to kill the Son of God. So there we have it. Two different responses to Jesus Christ. The wise men spent great energy in trying to worship him, and King Herod spent great energy in trying to kill him. And as I close my sermon now, I want to suggest to you that we only have two options as well in regard to Jesus Christ. Either we submit to him and worship him, or we oppose him. Either we receive him, or we reject him. Either we acknowledge him as the king of kings, or we agree that he deserved to die. Either we give our lives fully to him, or we reject and oppose him. Now, I can imagine somebody responding to what I just said by saying, hey, wait a second, wait a second. Isn't there a, a middle road? I mean, I'm glad that he's my savior and all, but do we really have to go so overboard in following him? Isn't there a, a third choice, a more moderate choice, where we, we recognize him for what he is, but we don't go so overboard in following him? Well, what I want to urge you to consider is that so often in the Bible it speaks only of two paths. I, I want you to look for this. As you're reading the Bible, I want, to look, I want you to look out for those times when it says it's either this way or this way. I'll give you a few examples here. Psalm 1-6. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Or Jesus himself in Matthew 7. Remember, he talked about the broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow road that leads to life. There's no third road that he mentions. And then John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. And the truth is, we are either following God or we're not. Now, yes, we could all do better at it, but the truth is, we're either following him or we're not. And, and I would say that it, it makes sense to me to say it this way too, that we're either growing closer to God or we're growing farther away from him. So although a person might say that they don't want to kill Jesus, 
It's all too easy for us to fall into that same trap of King Herod and look out for our own interests instead of the interests of God. To follow our own ways and not pursue God. And in that sense, I really think there is no middle ground here. Why should we try to come up with some middle road where we take some of our devotion away from Jesus? Our proper response to God sending our Savior is to worship Him. Now, uh, some of you maybe came in and, and thought, oh, why, why is this manger scene still up here? Why are these presents here? Well, a few weeks ago, Mary Beth's class, and, and thank you for this, you guys did a great job, you, you had a little drama for us where you each presented a gift to Jesus. And these gifts represented things like uh, repentance or, or following God or serving, the, the things that we can do in worship to God. And, and I ask that these gifts be left up here because I think it, it stands really as the illustration for what I, what I want you to, to go away with here today. Is that God has brought our Savior and our response should be to worship Him, to give Him gifts. And really the gift that we want to give Him is our lives. Lives lived for Him. Now the problem with this, this way of life is that we often have different plans. When we see what it is that God wants from us, how he wants us to live, sometimes we say, oh, but I'd rather do this. So one of the best gifts that we can give to God is the gift of submitting our will to him and to saying, even though in my sinful nature I might want to go this way, God, I go this way now in worship of you. And in this, I think the wise men serve as a great example of giving themselves to Jesus. And that's, that's, by the way, why I wore my wise men tie. How often do you get to wear a wise men tie? Well, I'm preaching on the wise men today. But they're a great example. They gave of their time, their talent, and their treasure. Think about their time. It was a long journey that they went on. They gave of their talent. They were people who looked at the stars, and when they saw something in the stars, they went to go see what it was. And then obviously they gave of their treasure, these costly gifts that they brought in worship of the true king. So an application question I have for you, are you using your time, your talent, your treasure to worship God? With your time, I want to ask you, first of all, privately, are you meeting with God? Are you praying regularly? Are you reading your, your Bible Are you worshiping God in your heart throughout your day? And then also, corporately, are you investing your time in in things in the life of the church to help you grow closer to God? Are you investing your time in serving in the church? The reason that we do things like Sunday morning worship service and Bible studies and Sunday school and things like that, it's not just because we want to chalk up numbers. It's because we want to give of our time to God to honor Him. So are you giving your time to honor God? Or what about your talents? One of the things I love about the message of Christianity is that God gives us spiritual gifts. Every one of us who knows Christ has a spiritual gift, at least one, that we can offer in service to the church. It says that these gifts are given to us for the building up of the church. So are you using your gifts, those things that God has given you? And and one note on this, and I've said this before, but I don't always know how you should use your gift. I would love to be able to just slot you all into the right places, but I don't always know how to do that. So if you have a talent that you would like to use in the church, please speak up and and use your talent. Um, 
And then treasure. Are you using your treasure? And really, our treasure is just what God has blessed us with. Are you using that treasure to bless God in return? Now, that includes things, obviously, like tithes and offerings, but it can also include other things, like if you have a truck and you can help people move, or if you know how to make meals and you can make a meal for somebody, things like that. But really, our worship of God is to be the complete offering of our whole lives to him. And, and I've mentioned recently, I, I, I'm going to pick Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 as my theme verses for the year. Romans 12, 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. What does it say is our spiritual act of worship? It's giving our bodies, our lives, to God in service to him in all that we do throughout our days, always thinking about him, always doing what we do for him. Or as we learned from Ethan Larson last Sunday in the sermon from Ephesians 3, we are to continually let Christ dwell in our hearts through faith. I I loved how Ethan pointed out to us that that's not just something that happens initially when we receive Jesus Christ. It's an ongoing thing that we are to let Christ dwell in our hearts through faith. And that power comes from God to do that, by the way, not from ourselves. So we are to continually worship God with our whole lives. That's the takeaway that I get from Matthew 2, as we see these two very different responses to Jesus. Our response is to be a life lived in worship of our King. But like I said, the problem is that we often have different plans. That was Herod's problem. Let's not make it our problem. When we're tempted to go our own way, let's remind ourselves to worship God. So for those of you that have been waiting to fill in that last blank, here it is, and it's the last thing in my sermon today, my big idea. God sent our Savior. We should worship Him. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so very much for sending our Savior. We would be utterly lost without this plan of salvation that you brought about. And Jesus, we praise you for coming. And God, we want our response to be worship. We come before you right now and we want to give our lives to you. Whether that's for the first time or whether that's as a recommitment of our hearts to keep on living for you, God, we want Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. We want to worship you with our whole lives, continually offering our bodies as living sacrifices to you as our spiritual act of worship. Teach us, God, what that looks like on a day-to-day, even a minute-to-minute basis. Help us to live our lives for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.